0: Alright, so let's start our next chapter. This is going to be industrialism in the Gilded Age. This is going to run around from 1865, so right after the Civil War, up until 1900. Now, you're going to see three main themes that are going to come out of this. You have, obviously, industrialism, which includes electricity, railroads, specifically the Transcontinental Railroad, steel, uh, a lot of new labor, banking, oil, and the mechanization of agriculture. A lot of that mechanization of agriculture is going to lead into urbanization now this urbanization is going to include different topics as well so you get the new immigrants and what I mean by new immigrants and I'm talking about southern and Eastern Europe. Your old immigrants were Northern and Western Europe. There's going to be a lot of job opportunities that are going to go that are going to open up within the cities and a lot of these new immigrants are going to be there in order to take these positions. You're going to see social stratification at probably close to its worst. You've got a burgeoning upper class. The middle class kind of dissolves there for a little while and then you have this lower class that A lot of people are moving into the cities. A lot of people are going to these job opportunities, but they're just not that good. Now, a lot of that you read about when you read The Jungle, about people that were coming from different parts of Europe, these new immigrants. They thought that they were going to come over for a better way of life, when in fact they were in this kind of endless cycle of debt. So we still get a lot of poverty, and because of poverty, we get a lot of crime. Uh, We also get into this idea of the social gospel and progressivism now on the politics side we're still feeling the effects of reconstruction we get these political machines Uh, money issues start to crop up in the 1870s and the 1890s and you're going to see more tariffs in the 1880s now populism and progressivism are also going to be one of your key components or two of your key components for the politics of the gilded age Now, the impact of the Civil War on economic expansion. Now, let's start off with some Republican legislation. There were five key acts that came out, or tariffs even. You had the Pacific Railway Act of 62, and this is gonna pave the way for the Transcontinental Railroad. The National Banking Act of 63, and this is gonna create a modern system that facilitated economic growth in the United States. The Moral Tariff of 62, this is gonna protect American companies from foreign competition. The Homestead Act, this is gonna facilitate westward expansion, and the Moral Land Grant Act of 62. So the last three have been for of 62, are gonna provide federal land. To create these state agriculture colleges. Think Arkansas State University which used to be Arkansas State College which used to be an agriculture only school. These are also land grant colleges. Now the Civil War economy is going to foreshadow the second industrial revolution. Now it did this because of the mass production techniques that are going to be used to produce things like muskets, bullets and uniforms for the war. And you're going to get a new class of millionaires because of these techniques. They're going to be created and they're going to use their capital after the war to invest in industrial growth. One of those things is railroad building. So by 1900, there's going to be over 192,000 miles of track that's going to be built. This is going to be more than all of Europe combined. The U.S. is going to subsidize this transcontinental railroad because originally these unpopulated areas are going to be very unprofitable. Now, the railroad companies are also going to be given 155 and a half million acres along the rail lines in a checkerboard pattern. So basically, they're going to alternate one square mile section, so back and forth. Now, because of this, this is not going to encourage them to go in a straight line because they get land per track area. So they're going to kind of go in this serpentine fashion because you get more land that way. All right, the government is also going to receive. Low rates for the postal service and the military traffic. And this is what they get in return for the subsidies. Now cities are going to grow wherever the track is going to be laid up. But if it's bypassed, so think the bypasses now. If you bypass a city, it becomes a ghost town just like it did with these railroads. The growth of the railroads are going to spark this second industrial revolution. And and, uh, products like steel and the coal industry are going to receive a huge boost because of them. Now, the Transcontinental Railroad itself, so we're looking at 1869, but we got to back up a little bit because of the different acts that go into it, so so we actually get this combination of the Transcontinental Railroad, because it's a combination of several different railroads, it's not just one. So you have the Pacific Railway Act of 62. This is going to be passed by Republican Congress during the Civil War. And this is going to connect the Pacific states to the east because it was seen as very urgent to national security of the U.S. And construction is going to begin three years later in 65. Now, the, uh, the Union Pacific Railroad, it's going to come west from Omaha, Nebraska. And the company was granted 20 square miles for each mile of track constructed, again, that serpentine pattern is is more agreeable to them the company was also granted federal loans for each mile so if it was flat land they got 16,000 if it was hilly country 32,000 and if they had to kind of chisel through or or blast through mountainous country 48,000 Now, the people working were generally the Irish. They were called patties, and they were a group of men who fought in the Union armies. They're going to work at a frantic pace to get this constructed. There's going to be insiders as part of the Credit Mobilier. This is a construction company. They're going to pocket $73 million, but only do $50 million worth of work. The way they did this is because they bribed congressmen In order to look the other way and you're gonna see later that these railroads are a very very dangerous and very influential political adversary during the Industrial Age or during the Gilded Age the Central Pacific Railroad this is going to push east from Sacramento go over the Sierra Nevadas it's going to be led by four very talented businessmen one of them is going to be Leland Stanford who was an ex-governor of California and will later be a senator. Uh, The U.S. government is going to provide the same subsidies as the Union Pacific for this Central Pacific Railroad. Now, instead of the Irish patties, you're you're looking at over 10,000 Chinese laborers called coolies who will build the railroad. Now, a lot of them, hundreds, will lose their lives in premature explosions and other mishaps along the railroad. Now, the railroad is going to be completed at Promontory Point, Utah, on May 10th, 1869. The ending of the track, so you're going to have the Union Pacific that's going to build over 1,000 miles of line, while the Central Pacific only builds 689 miles of line. So you can see there's a pretty vast difference there. Now, the significance of all this is it linked the entire continent via railroad. And as the railroad went, the telegraph went too. So you've got both railroad line and telegraph line running from basically east to west. So it's going to pave way for the incredible growth of what was considered the Great West. And it's going to facilitate a burgeoning trade with Asia because now instead of having to go through Europe or sail around In order to to get to Asia, we're coming from California and going straight toward, you know, Asiatic waters. It's going to be seen by Americans at the time as a monumental achievement, and it's going to be right up there with things like the Declaration of Independence and Abolition of Slaves. Now, there will be other transcontinental lines, but none of these subsequent railroad lines are going to receive the government loans, but they'll all still get generous land grants. James G. Hill was considered one of the greatest of all these railroad builders. He's going to believe that the prosperity of the railroad was based on the prosperity of the area it served. I mean, rightfully so. He's also going to run these agricultural demonstration trains along his lines and he's going to import bulls from England that he will distribute to farmers because who better to get in good with if you're trying to run rail lines than with the farmers, especially this time. Uh, The Northern Pacific Railroad was completed in 1883, and this is going to run from Lake Superior to Seattle. The Atchison-Topeka and the Santa Fe Railroad was completed in 1884, and it's going to connect those cities through the Southwestern Desert to California. And then the Southern Pacific Railroad ran from New Orleans to San Francisco via Los Angeles, and it will be completed in 1884. Now, with all of this power, with all of this money, you're going to see railroad consolidation and you're going to see a lot of corruption. Enter Cornelius Vanderbilt. Now he's going to popularize the idea of steel rails and he's going to replace the old iron tracks of the New York Central Railroad because steel was safer and more economical since it could carry a heavier load. So you could run more product on your train. He was known as the Commodore, and he had a near-monopoly of railroad traffic in the eastern U.S. With his railroad, he is going to amass a fortune of over $100 million. His monopolistic practices are considered... Well, so his monopolistic practices... And then all of his political influence, all of this is going to make critics start to call him a robber baron, which will be used later for a lot of those who will continue with the the monopolies and kind of putting their fingers in the pies of politics. All right, Jay Gould, G-O-U-L-D, and Russell Sage. Now, by 1880, they're going to control much of the railroads in the West, Uh, They're going to hurt their own railroads by something called stock watering. And basically what you do is you keep your profits instead of reinvesting back into your your product or your business. By doing this, a lot of the railroad stock promoters would grossly inflate the value of the stock. And obviously eventually it would fail along with... The railroad itself. Now, Gould had earlier tried to corner the gold market during Grant's presidency doing the same thing. All right. The railroad tycoons are going to become America's most powerful people. They're going to bribe judges and legislatures. They're going to employ effective lobbyists. And they're going to elect their own men to office because they have this power. They gave free passes to journalists and politicians to, you know, continue on in their favor. Vanderbilt basically said, you know, law, what do I care about the law? You know, he, he, he knew he had power. So... He basically would squash his opponents economically rather than sue them legally because he would undercut them to the point where they would have to shut down. Now, eventually, the railroad barons are going to rule as an oligarchy instead of a cutthroat competition. They realize it was better to work together than against each other. Now, the significance of America's railroad network, it's going to spur the industrialization of the post-Civil War years, especially with steel. So, this is going to help, you know, the likes of Carnegie and later J.P. Morgan, which we'll talk about in a little bit. The continent became united physically. It's going to create a huge domestic market for U.S. raw materials and manufactured goods. This is going to be perhaps the largest integrated market in the world. It's going to stimulate the creation of three western frontiers of mining, agriculture, and ranching. And it's going to lead to a great exodus to cities from rural areas in the late 19th century. And railways could feed these huge cities and they could supply raw materials and the markets. It's also going to facilitate a large influx of immigrants. Railroads advertised in Europe, free travel to new farms in the American West. It's going to spur investment from abroad, and it's going to lead to the creation of distinct time zones from coast to coast. It was also a maker of millionaires, so you get a new railroad aristocracy that will emerge. And, of course, you know, then you have this severe downside of it. Native Americans are going to be displaced, and they're going to be herded into these ever-shrinking reservations. All right, the, re- the regulation of railroads, which was a very difficult thing. Now, initially, Americans were very slow to react to the excesses of the railroad oligarchy. You had these Jeffersonian or Jacksonian ideals that were really hostile to government interference with businesses. And Americans were very de- dedicated to the idea of laissez-faire, or that free enterprise, and to the principle that competition was supposed to fuel trade. Many believed anyone could become a millionaire. So that whole idea of the American dream. Now, the Supreme Court decisions that would go along with this. Now, depression in the 1870s is going to spur farmers to complain about being forced into bankruptcy by unfair railroad policies. They organized agrarian groups such as the Grange that pressured many Midwestern legislatures to regulate the railroads. So you had these things like the Slaughterhouse Cases in 1873. Now this would mold the courts' interpretation of the 14th Amendment for decades. The court ruled protection of labor was not a federal responsibility under the 14th Amendment but a state responsibility. Now the significance of this was it protected businesses from federal regulation if they engaged only in intrastate commerce. Then you had Munn versus Illinois. This is 1877. The court upheld, upheld one of the pro-farmer Granger laws, and the decision was that the public always had the right to regulate business operations in which the public has an interest. So basically it ruled against the railroads. Then there was the Wabash case of 1886. Now, the significance of this was the Supreme Court ruled that the individual states had no power to regulate interstate commerce. That responsibility rested with the federal government. So, in effect, the decision nullified Munn versus Illinois, an Illinois law that had you know, prohibited the railroad short-haul and long-haul practices. And it also sparked demand for the Interstate Commerce Act of 1887. In 86, so we'll go right back, the court ruled that a corporation was a person under the 14th Amendment. So it became extremely difficult for the federal government to regulate corporations, especially as Supreme Court justices and a lot of your government officials often sided with these corporations. Because remember, they're being bribed. The railroad companies, in particular, hid behind this decision. So then you had the Interstate Commerce Act. Now, this is going to be passed in 1887. This is going to be the first large-scale legislation that's going to be passed by federal government to regulate corporations in the interest of society. It's going to become a precedent for future regulatory commissions in the 20th century. Because of this, you're going to set up the Interstate Commerce Commission, or the ICC, and its, its most important provision was to enforce and administer the act. It also prohibited rebates and pools, Required and it required uh, railroads to publish their rates openly. It's also going to forbid unfair discrimination against shippers and outlaw charging more for short haul than long haul over the same line. Now, the positive result was this, is it provided an orderly forum where competing business interests, interests could resolve conflicts in a peaceful way. But the ICC didn't effectively regulate the railroads that was... That was as it was more of a panacea to placate the public. A lot of alliteration there. Uh, the lack of enforcement provisions meant that the act basically had no teeth and not a lot came from it. Now, industrialization and mechanization. The Civil War created huge fortunes in a class of millionaires who were now eager to invest in industry. Natural resources fed industrial growth. So you had the Mesabi range deposits in Minnesota and the Lake Superior region that are going to yield huge tracts of iron ore for the steel industry. The unskilled labor, both domestic and foreign, was now very cheap and abundant. We start to get these new technologies. So patents are going to increase significantly between 1860 and 1890. Uh, You start to see Whitney's interchangeable parts concept, the cash register, the stock ticker. And a lot of, in a lot of cases, women are going to start entering the workplace to run these different types of machines. Urbanization is going to be spurred by things like the electric car and refrigerated railroad cars. We get um, inventors like Alexander Graham Bell, who will come out with the telephone. Thomas Edison, who will develop the incandescent light, or he is, you know, said to have. The electricity becomes another cornerstone of the Industrial Revolution. We start to see trusts and there's two main ways that a trust is worked. You have vertical integration which means you control every aspect of the production process and then you have horizontal integration which means you buy out competitors to monopolize a given market. Now the first one was really a big deal for Andrew Carnegie while John Rockefeller was more of the horizontal integration type. Okay, then there's interlocking directorates. Now, these are going to be organized by J.P. Morgan. There's going to be a lot of depression in the 1890s, so, you know, this is going to, you know, this this kind of thing is going to hit hard, especially for your your struggling businessmen. They're going to go to Morgan Morgan is going to want to consolidate some of these rival enterprises. He's going to place his own men on the boards of directors and this kind of gives him it gives him this ability to to kind of be in charge of these different companies without making it a monopoly. We get this idea of holding companies in the 20th century, and this is to get around these antitrust legislations or these anti-monopoly legislations. They're going to buy these controlling shares of stock in these member companies instead of purchasing companies outright. So, if you have enough stock, you have that that vote. You have that controlling vote within a company to make it do what you want it to, but you don't actually own the company, so it gets around that legislation. The steel industry. Now, this is the cornerstone of the second American Industrial Revolution. This is going to hold together things like skyscrapers and bridges. Obviously, your railroad tracks. This is going to typify heavy industry, which is going to concentrate on making capital goods rather than consumer goods. So, these big, massive things that you can sell to places like the military. Or groups like the military, I should say. Andrew Carnegie is going to... Is going to be one of the main proponents of this. Carnegie became the first to utilize the Bessemer process because prior to Carnegie, steel was mainly used for small things like forks and knives, spoons, that kind of thing, because it was a very expensive process. Now, Carnegie is going to dislike this whole idea of the monopolistic trust. He's going to, his organization. Was a partnership? Partnership, sorry, that's going to involve about forty different style, steel tycoons at one point. Now he's going to have a general manager, Henry Frick, who is going to be kind of his muscle. Um, eventually, Carnegie is going to sell his company to J.P. Morgan for over four hundred million dollars, and he's going to spend the rest of his life being a philanthropist. He's actually going to compete with Rockefeller over how much money they can actually get rid of. Now, Morgan, he's gonna he owns a or owned a Wall Street banking house, which financed the reorganization of railroads, insurance companies, and banks. He had a reputation for integrity, but did not but and did not believe that money power was dangerous unless it was in the wrong hands. In nineteen oh one, he's gonna launch the enlarged U.S. Steel Corporation. This was a combination of Carnegie's Holdings and others, as well as some stock watering. We get this new group called the Nouveau Riche. This group is going to be one, you know, them as well as a lot of your old rich are going to justi- try to justify this whole wealth gap. This The Nouveau Riche is going to be an arrogant new super rich, what was considered to be leisure class. Now, they're going to emerge specifically during the second industrial revolution. So, basically, their wealth is brand new. It's not something that had been passed down from generation to generation. Um, They're going to be targeted by a lot of the critics. They're going to call them these robber barons because Vanderbilt was one of those. Vanderbilt came up from nothing. Uh, by 1890, corporations Corporations owned about 40% of the value of all the property in the U.S., and a lot of those were part of that nouveau riche. The older American aristocracy of successful merchants and professionals were highly resentful and concerned about the new changes in the order of society. So you had these patrician families like the Roosevelt's that were losing power and prestige in the face of the new, the new rich. Now, despite the emerging plutocracy and the deep class division, The captains of industry are going to provide material progress. The overall standard of living in America is going to continue to rise despite these monopolistic practices. Most goods were actually cheaper than they'd been and millions of people were employed in these new industries. Now, this leads us to social Darwinism. Hubert Spencer was one of the main advocates of the idea of social Darwinism, so he applied Darwin's theory of natural selection to the idea of human com- competition and the natural law of the survival of the fittest. He believed it justified these inequities in human society because of, you know, that became between the wealthy and the poor. Those who were poor, according to him, bore the blame due to their perceived laziness, lack of virtue, and lack of talent. And millionaires were supposed to be a product of natural selection. Now, some argued God that chose winners and losers in society. Uh, people like Rockefeller believed this. They, this whole idea resembled the divine right of kings and justifying power. Those who stayed poor must be lazy and lacking in enterprise. Many of the new rich had succeeded from very modest beginnings like Carnegie. Carnegie had a father that did not provide, um, I believe, both of his parents' Either died young or left him very young, and he ended up working from a very very young age. So basically, he kind of brought himself up. Uh, Reverend Russell Conwell did the Acres of Diamonds lectures. Basically, said there's not a poor person in the U.S. who has not made who was not made poor by his own shortcomings. Uh, Andrew Carnegie believed in the whole idea of the Gospel of Wealth, and this to him justified this undistribution of wealth. Uh, It synthesized the prevailing attitudes of wealth and survival of the fittest. He believed wealth was God's will and believed in the long run extreme disparities of wealth that were actually good for the human race because the wealthy added to civilization and believed that the alternative to inequity of wealth was universal squalor. He wrote that one's wealth should largely be donated for the public good, though. And he's going to criticize the nouveau riche who flaunted their wealth and did not partake in philanthropy. And many of wealthy people believe Carnegie was actually a traitor to his class, except for John Rockefeller, who followed his advice and actually gave away over $550 million by the time he died when he was 97. All right, Carnegie also argued against these cash handouts to individuals because he believed it would stifle the individual initiative. So this leads us to government regulation of trusts. We had the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, and it was passed in response to public demands for curbing the excess power of trusts. It forbade uh, combinations in restraint of trade without any distinction between good trusts and bad trusts. And it was largely ineffective because it had no significant enforcement mechanisms, just like you know, everyone that came before them. Uh, More trusts are going to form in the 1890s under President McKinley than any other period because it was basically believed that he was bought by a lot of your robber barons or that, you know, elite class. Uh, Ironically, corporations use the Sherman Act to curb labor unions or labor combinations that were deemed to be restraining trade. So public interest now challenged private enterprise and political power due to such acts as the Interstate Commerce Act of 1887 and the Sherman Antitrust Act. Okay, so let's continue on with the guild today. This is going to be part two here. So let's start with the new South. So you have a changing South after the Civil War. Now, politically, Southern whites are going to see the Democratic Party as the only viable party. So, you have the solid South that's going to emerge after 1877 with the Democratic Party that's firmly in control. Now, to ensure its control, each Southern state is going to pass legislation taking voting, or voting rights away from blacks. Now, all of this was considered to be legal because it didn't go against the 13th, 14th, or 15th Amendment. So, you have things like the literacy tests meaning that you have to read like a pamphlet or the Constitution or even sometimes memorize the Constitution in order to show that you are intelligent enough to vote or that you're able to understand the legislation or, you know, whatever it is you're voting for. Then you had poll taxes. And poll taxes, my aunt actually remembers paying poll taxes, and this would have been like in the, you know, the 50s, <clears throat> like late, early, well, yeah, like mid-40s. Like early 50s um, she had to pay a poll tax of you know a couple of dollars but for a woman in the 40s you now this is a significant amount of money now two dollars does not sound like a lot but if you put it into perspective you're looking at depending on what these people were paid a lot of time they were only paid like a dollar seventy-five a week so in, if you can imagine paying almost two weeks worth of pay just to go and vote, and you know, you might have different ballots for each time, because it's not like now when you go to vote, you'll have, say, the the president and vice president are together, you may be voting for a... Uh, Congressperson out of your state you may be voting for some legislation at the same time So you would just pay for that in this case You may pay to vote for president and then you may pay to vote for mayor And then you may pay to vote for you know some legislation, you know So it's going to add up pretty quick for those who don't have a steady income or who are continually being pushed down socioeconomically Then you had the grandfather clause and grandfather clause meant the whole idea was if your grandfather could vote meaning they were legal citizens that's the, bi- that's the key thing. Legal citizens. And it wouldn't be until the 14th Amendment that black men and women were considered citizens. So they wouldn't have that ability to vote because they weren't technically citizens under the Dred Scott case. So you also started to get these two groups that are going to come out of these powerful conservative oligarchies. You're going to get the Redeemers and the Bourbons or the Bourbons. They're going to control every Southern state government after the end of the of Reconstruction. Now, they're they're similar, this is going to be similar to the Annabelle and planner class. It's also going to include merchants, industrialists, railroad developers, and bankers. So that's that's the difference between it and the that old Annabelle and, uh planter class. Now, socially. This, this is still going back to the New South. Socially, white leaders are going to adopt the Jim Crow laws. Now, these, re- these laws are going to require a separation of whites and blacks in any kind of public facility. So, this could be, you know, later on we get into buses. This could be public restrooms. This could be restaurants, um, schools. You know, it's one of the big ones that we we see a lot of, we saw a lot of segregation in. Uh, Political and economic power is still going to remain in the hands of a lot of your, your powerful white aristocracy. Now, the growth of the southern industry, so Henry Grady, he was the editor of the Atlantic Constitution, this was a newspaper, and he's going to challenge the south to industrialize and modernize because they were still mainly agrarian, I mean, really are today. He's going to urge the south to outproduce the north commercially and industrially. Now, there's going to be some major challenges to the south becoming industrialized. For one, the south is going to remain predominantly rural, so you don't have a lot of cities you don't have a lot of clustered areas for industrialization to grow there's going to be a lack of capital there's very little technological innovation going on in the south and the northern dominance is still going to remain in banking and technology now the cotton industry is going to develop further though in the south so you're going to have mill towels that are going to emerge in the carolinas and in georgia the large wealthy southern interests are going to vertically integrate the cotton industry. Textile factories are going to be encouraged by Southern governments who offered low taxes, a cheap labor supply, and an abundance of water power. So it's that whole move the mill to the cotton instead of the cotton to the mill. Southern white workers earned wages 30 to 50% less than New New England workers, and we still kind of see that today. If you look at the cost of living in New York versus Arkansas or versus uh, like California, It's more expensive to live in both places because people make more money in both places. It's that whole idea of supply and demand, economics, blah, blah, blah. right, mill towns are going to control workers' entire lives. Also, while providing community and solidarity among workers, these mill towns are going to prevent any kind of union organization. Because if you have a union, then you have to start doing better hours, better pay, better benefits. And, you know, they didn't want that. Uh, Coal mining industry, this is going to grow along the Appalachian Mountain Range. You get the tobacco trust. And the tobacco industry is going to grow dramatically after 1880 with the advent of machine-made cigarettes instead of the hand-rolling. James Buchanan Duke and his family, the American Tobacco Company, are going to mass-produce these slim cigarettes at their North Carolina factory. So basically, they're the reason that, you know, the big tobacco is the way they are today. They started Anyway, iron and steel production is going to develop in Birmingham, Alabama. Now, however, there's a problem. Northern interests are going to come to dominate southern production like Carnegie and Morgan. Now, thousands of miles of rail line are going to be built, but half of it is going to be dominated by, again, northern interests. Southern industrialization was impaired by the railroads charging higher rates for transporting southern manufactured goods than raw materials. Agriculture is still going to dominate the South uh, economically. The South remained rural while industrialism was slow to take hold. The plantation system is going to degenerate into a pattern of absentee land ownership with white tenant farmers or black sharecroppers tilling the land the crop lien system was at the core of southern agriculture this is that share cropping so it basically meant that a farmer would mortgage his future crop in return for use of the land and to acquire supplies from the owner of a local store selling tools or seeds so what that basically means is they would rent the land they would rent the seed they would rent the tools so they were having to pay that and in most cases they would have to give a share of the crop so Every year, this farmer was one crop failure away from being out on his rear, basically. All right. Since merchants seldom had competitors, farmers paid these inflated prices for goods purchased on credit as well as a very high interest rate. Often a farmer's harvest was given away as its entirety to the merchant, but the farmer still remained in debt, just like I was talking about. Indebtedness tended to increase annually, resulting in the eventual loss of the land for the farmer. Now, you know, the person that's renting it, however, has gotten the crop and the money, etc. And then they could just go on to a new tenant. The system of economic tyranny it basically contributed to an increase in cash crop growth as it was seen as a more profitable way of paying off debts. Now, the results of southern industrialization. By 1900, southern manufacturers remained at just 10% of the national level. This is the same as it was in 1860. So, you know, there was no growth. Uh, Per capita income in the South was 60% of the national average. Average income in the South was only 40% of the income in the North. Sharecropping still dominated Southern agriculture by 1900, so you have black and white tenant farmers that are going to account for 70% of Southern farmers. The South was still largely dependent on the North for banking resources and manufactured goods. Now, the impact on America, of the second industrial revolution. Now, we had a standard of living that's going to rise really sharply, and it's going to remain the highest in the world. Urban centers are going to mushroom as factories increase demand, and this is going to need more labor. Uh, U.S. agriculture was eclipsed by industrialism, so railroad, steel, oil, electricity. Free enterprise was eclipsed by monopoly. The workplace became regimented and impersonal, and women achieved social and economic independence as they got new careers like typing, stenography, and switchboard operators, meaning that marriages were delayed so women were older when they got married. There would be smaller fa- families as well because women would enter into you know, these less fertile ages when they were getting married, so fewer children. Social stratif- stratification was the most pronounced that we've had in U.S. history. By 1900, about 10% controlled 90% of the nation's wealth. Let that set in. 10% controlled 90% of the wealth. The lower classes were envious and they were very resentful of this nouveau riche. Remember, the nouveau riche is going to include likes, the likes of Carnegie, uh, Vanderbilt, and Rockefeller. Also, sort of J.P. Morgan-ish. J.P. Morgan's father was actually, you know, rich, so he might not be classified as that entirely. Uh, Foreign trade developed as high U.S. productivity resulted in overproduction. Okay, so this, you know, all these uh, monopolistic trusts and These robber barons, this this political corruption, the railroad corruption, all of this is going to lead to the rise of the labor movement. Now, conditions for workers in the Second Industrial Revolution were very difficult. You had these low-skilled jobs, and this made workers expendable, as workers were very abundant. Remember, we're having this mass immigration from Eastern and Southern um, Europe. And you've also got this new labor source that wants to get paid, a.k.a., The newly freed blacks. Sorry, I need a drink. All right. Automation is going to create short term losses of jobs, but it's going to be better in the long run. Now, before mechanization, most manufacturing was done by skilled craft workers. These are going to be people like shoemakers and saddle makers. And these early unions were trade unions. Now, we still have trade unions today. Think like the Plumbers Guild or the Electricians Guild. Those are trade unions, meaning they specialize in one specific job. Alright, working conditions were often very dismal, they were very impersonal. Uh, The recourse for workers was very minimal in the face of this vast power of industrialists. Strikes were often nullified by the use of scab workers. You've probably seen that in the news lately with Kellogg's using scab workers. And you've probably seen the, the product and its quality has went down since the strikes. Anyway, conservative federal courts often ruled in favor of these corporations instead of the people because, remember, they were in their back pocket. Uh, Corporations also had way too much power. They could ask states to call in troops to put down strikes. So, corporations could call in, like, the National Guard to put down a strike at their company. That makes no sense. Anyway... Employers could lock out workers and starve them into submission. Where else were they going to work? Workers were often forced to sign these things called ironclad oaths or yellow dog contracts. These were agreements not to join a labor union. If you were to join a labor union, businesses could blacklist you as being rebellious. You could be fired. I mean, it's a multitude of things could happen if... You went against these contracts or these oaths. Corporations sometimes own what were called company towns. And there's two country- companies that are trying to do one here. lately. I don't remember one of them. I know Amazon is talking about doing a, something along the lines of a company town. And the company town is where uh, people work there. So, you've got the business itself. And then there are other businesses that are owned by the company. Like, maybe your grocery store. Because, you know, Amazon is uh, owner of Whole Foods. So it's like you would have that and you'd have Whole Foods and then they would also be in charge of like the apartments, the, the you know, the tenants agreements. So these company towns were high priced, you know, grocery stores. You got easy credit and the rent deductions were, co- were taken directly from your paycheck. And this created a cycle of debt because, again, high priced. You weren't able to go somewhere else to spend your money. The public grew tired of frequent strikes and became very unsympathetic to any of these labor's demands. Strikes seemed to many Americans as a foreign and so- socialistic, and unpatriotic. Uh, a lot of wages were still the highest in the world, but the conditions—well, the conditions were pretty pretty bad. Um, it's an understatement to say that your robber barons could have paid their employees better, could have gave them better hours, could have gave them better conditions. It was more of a, hey, I can swap you out for somebody else so I don't care mentality. Uh, Labor's goals of currency reform, and these, you know, there were calls because of inflation, and the opposition to the National Bank alarmed a lot of conservatives for the rest of the century. Now, the Civil War is going to boost labor unions. So we're kind of backtracking just a t- just a scotch Now, the drain of human resources, because lots of people died, that you had people who were mentally or physically unable to work. Uh, some people just disappeared. You had a lot of people, or not a lot, you had several people in the South that would move into, like, areas of Brazil. They could not... They couldn't deal with the fact that the South had lost and they would have to give up their slaves that they still considered to be property, so they took themselves, their families, and their slaves down into Brazil, who it wouldn't be until, I believe, 1888, so several years later, that they would actually abolish slavery there. But anyway, so you've got a lot, you've got this gap. You've got this whole of l- human resources, much like we do now because of COVID. You had a lot of people, um, you know, die because of COVID. And you also had a lot of people, if they could retire, they retired. So there is this, like, vacuum of, of labor. So it gets it to the point where your people who are working can, you know, they have a leg to stand on when it comes to having better wages and better um, benefits, better hours, better conditions, etc. All right, so the rising cost of living is going to create the urgent incentives for workers to unionize. Now, by 1872, there's going to be several hundred thousand organized workers and 32 national unions that will exist, and this will include include crafts like Uh, Bricklaying, typesetters, and shoemakers. Now, collective bargaining. This is going to emerge as a standard union demand. This basically meant that workers wanted to vote for their own representatives that would negotiate on their behalf with the company owners. Now, one of the labor unions that came out of this was the National Labor Union. It's going to be organized in 1866, and it's going to provide a major boost to the union movement. It's going to be led by a man named William Silvis, S-Y-L-V-I-S. It sought to bring together skilled craft unions into one large union instead of having all these little tiny ones. It's going to last about six years, and at its peak, it's going to boast around 600,000 workers. It's going to focus on social reform, like the abolition of the wage system, an eight-hour workday, and the arbitration of industrial disputes. Now, it's going to succeed in getting an eight-hour day for government workers, but the new laws had no means of enforcement and provisions were not implemented for anybody else. You also had the colored labor Sorry, Colored National Labor Union, the CNLU, and this was founded in 1869 by African-Americans after they were encouraged to form a separate branch of the NLU. And the NLU eventually folded due to the Panic of 1873 and subsequent depression of the mid-1870s. So then we had the the Great Railroad Strike of 1877. Now, there's going to be several railroads that will announce, announce wage cuts of 10% for the second time since 1873. Now, this is going to be the first nationwide strike and it's going to paralyze railroads throughout the east and midwest and it's going to idle some 100,000 workers later you're going to have farmers coal miners craft workers and the unemployed join in on this strike and it's going to involve 14 states and 10 railroads president hayes is going to sanction the use of federal troops in pennsylvania and set the precedent for future federal intervention there's going to be 100 deaths and this is going to terrify the property class because it's like, oh God, what can they do? Uh, the strike inspired support for the Greenback Labor Party in 1878 and the Working Men's Party in the 1880s. Now, another... Labor Union, you had the Knights of Labor. little background here, it was led by Terence Powderly. He was a moderate. He founded it in 1869 as a secret society. And the secrecy continued until 1881 to prevent retribution by employers. Because it was like, oh, if they know that you're part of the union, they may retaliate, they may fire you, they may, you know, blacklist you, etc., Uh, used Republican imagery associated with Lincoln that each man should have a say in the political and economic issues that affected him. Much of the leadership and the membership was Irish. They sought to include all workers in one big union, and this included blacks and women. The industrial unionism idea was ahead of its time, and it was not seen again until the 1930s. Most 19th century unions were trade unions with skilled workers. They campaigned for economic and social reform. They sought producers' cooperatives, uh, codes for safety and health, and into an child labor. The cooperative idea paralleled the Grange in the West, and they sought to replace the wage system with all workers owning factories. So basically, you would have a buy in and like the stock and whatnot. They fought for an eight hour workday through winning a number of strikes, higher pay, and equal pay for women. They sought government regulation of railroads postal savings banks, and an increase in the government paper currency. They also sought arbitration rather than industrial warfare, so they discouraged strikes and violence, and Powderly's ban on strikes would basically be ignored, and this is what's going to lead to the Knights' demise. They won a major strike in 1885 against Gould's struggling railroad company, and this victory is going to increase the Knights' membership to more than 700,000 in 1886. All right, so more about their, uh, their demise. This, is, you know, part, this was due to that, like I said, the strike. It was due to the great upheaval of 1886. You had 1,400 strikes involving 500,000 workers and the Haymarket Square bombing. So to many, the, ty- the Knights were a huge organization that could throw the economy into chaos. Its involvement in a number of May Day strikes in 1886 resulted in 50% failure. The Haymarket Square bombing in Chicago, this was May 4th, 1886, basically Chicago police advanced on a meeting called to protest alleged uh, police brutality in the May Day strikes. There's going to be a dynamite bomb that's going to be thrown at the crowd. It will kill eight policemen. Sixty officers are going to be injured um, by, uh, sorry, sixty officers are going to be injured by police fire. There's going to be like seven or eight civilians that are killed, and between 30 and 40 will be wounded. The result of this is the first full-blown red scare in Chicago, and it will last for two months. Now, the rise of the Working Man's Party in various cities are going to scare conservatives who blacklisted a lot of these members through Employers Association, and that's set that yellow dog contracts and those ironclad oaths. The Knights of Labor became mistakenly associated with anarchists, so their eight-hour movement suffered and the subsequent strikes met with a lot of failures. The inclusion of both skilled and unskilled workers also proved fatal. Unskilled labor could be easily replaced with the scabbed. The scabs, the high-class craft unionists, enjoyed a superior bargaining position because they had the skills that could not be easily replaced. They were frustrated with giving up their bargaining advantage due to the failure of unskilled labor strikes. Powderly's cautious leadership stifled the rank-and-file mobilization by opposing strikes and forbidding political action. Skilled craftsmen sought a union of exclusively skilled craft unions. And by the 1890s, the Knights of Labor only had 100,000 members. Remember, at their their peak, they had 700,000 members. And most of those ultimately left to join other protest groups. right, the AFL, this is the American Federation of Labor. This was formed in 1886 under the leadership of Samuel Gompers, and it consisted of an association of self-governing national unions with the AFL unifying the overall strategy. Gomper's path was fairly conservative as he opposed socialism and preferred to be non-political. He accepted the existence of two conflicting classes, so you had workers and employers. He only wanted labor to win its fair share, so better wages and hours, and improved working conditions, so the whole bread and butter issue. He did, however, persuade his members to vote for pro-union candidates. Closed <clears throat> Close Shop Institute... Sorry. Closed shop. Institute instituted by the AFL, and so this was all where all the workers in the unionized industry had to become part of the union, and this provided the necessary funds to ride out any kind of prolonged strike. The chief trap. Chi- I cannot talk. I'm sorry. The chief strategies of the AFL were the walkout and the boycott. Now the walkout is literally where everybody just got up and stopped what they were doing and walked out. The boycott would be not only, it wouldn't only be the workers, this would also have to be like your general public. So say you wanted to boycott Kellogg's, that means that you would stop buying their product, you know, in whole. By eighteen, sorry, by 1900, it had about 500,000 members and critics actually called this a labor trust. Now, let's talk about some of the major strikes in the 1890s. So, we had the Homestead strike in 1892, and it occurred in Carnegie's steel plant near Pittsburgh. Now, remember I told you, you had Henry Frick, and he also worked with Carnegie. They're going to announce a 20% pay slash for steel workers, and they're like, really? So, the Amalgamated Association of Iron, Steel, and Tin Workers went on strike, and Frick locked them out. Workers surrounded the factory, and scabs were not allowed through the picket line. Frick called in 300 Pinkerton detectives to break the strike. So you had armed strikers that were forcing the Pinkertons to surrender after 9 Pinkertons and 7 workers were killed, and about 150 others were wounded. Pennsylvania's governor brought in 8,000 state militia, and scabs replaced workers, and the strike was broken. dozen of workers were indicted on 167 counts of murder, rioting, and conspiracy by the jury... But eventually, they, they found the leaders innocent, and the union was effectively broken after that. This also demonstrated that a strong employer could break a union if it hired a private police, the Pinkertons, and gained government and court protection. Hello, they sent in the military. The Pullman Strike of 1894, the Pullman Palace Car Company responded to the Great Railroad Strike of 1877 by building a model company town for its workers near its factory in Chicago. The Pullman Company was hit hard by the Depression and cut wages by a third, but it still maintained the rent prices in the company town. So they've got less money, but let's go ahead and keep our rent prices the same, even though we control all of it. Eugene V. Debs helped organize the American Railway, railway Union of about 150,000 railroad, rail workers. Workers went on strike when over, while overturning some Pullman cars. The railway, railway traffic from Chicago to the Pacific Coast was paralyzed due to this. Attorney General Richard Olney, O-L-N-E-Y sent in federal troops stating strikers were interfering with the transit of U.S. mail. President Cleveland basically said if it takes the entire Army and Navy to deliver a postal card in Chicago, that card will be delivered. Violence spread to several states, costing 37 lives. The strike was crushed and the ARU was destroyed. Debs and his lieutenants were sentenced to six months jail time for contempt of court. Debs used his time to read radical literature, which influenced his later leadership of the socialist movement in the U.S. First time... The federal government used an injunction to break a strike. The government made striking an activity not previously defined as illegal a crime. Strikers, strikers would thus be held in contempt of court and could be imprisoned without a jury trial. Between 1881 and 1900, 23,000 strikes occurred involving 6.6 million workers, that's about 3% of all the working people. The public finally began to accept workers' rights to organize, bargain collectively, and strike. Labor Day was made a legal holiday by Congress in 1894. By 1900, unions had largely failed to achieve their goals. Wages remained almost the same compared to 1865, you know, 35 years before. Work hours remained high in most industries. Work conditions remained oppressive. Most unions were either broken or severely weakened by uh, the owner or the government actions. And the the American Federation, Federation of Labor was among the few unions that remained intact and saw improvement For its workers. We still have the AFLU today. Now, we had three major unions and three major strikes during this time period. You had the National Labor Union, the Kings, Kings, you had the Knights of Labor and the American Federation of Labor. Like I said, that one is still in use today. Then we had three big strikes. The Great Railroad Strike of 1877, the Homestead Strike of 1892, and the Pullman Strike of 1894.